Well, it's brilliant, isn't it, to be together, to be able to celebrate Easter. You know, and then it's amazing to me to, to think that not only are there people who are, who are celebrating Easter, um, all around the world in every different language and culture and, and kind of country, but people have been celebrating Easter and gathering together for nearly 2,000 years now. And a lot's changed in those years, hasn't it? You know, the world is radically different now. And the way that we celebrate Easter is radically different now than it was 2,000 years ago. And with all of the the changes, Easter can become quite confusing. You know, with all all of the changes and and all of the different things that kind of have been added in and people have done, it, it can be hard to piece together what Easter is really all about. What really happened 2,000 years ago, and what is it that people have just kind of added in since then? But mixed in there is this kind of confusion with different things that we now associate with Easter, which really have nothing to do with Jesus. And so this morning, I want to talk about what's of first importance. When it comes to Easter, what are the key things that we really need to make sure we get hold of? And what was in first importance 2,000 years ago is still what's of first importance for us today. You know, a lot of different things have changed over the last 2,000 years. You know, we've discovered so much through science. We've advanced so much technologically. But one thing hasn't changed. What hasn't changed is the deepest longings of the human heart. The deepest needs of the human heart. No matter what we think we've accomplished as a society, how far we've gone on and the the kind of how civilized and advanced we are, the deepest cry of the human heart to find life and purpose and meaning and acceptance and love is still the same. And even if we don't feel we've got this deep kind of longing and this ache within us, when we look around the world, when we look at what friends and loved ones go through, at the injustice and the evil that we we see in the world, at the pain and the suffering, when we hear about things like what happened in Sri Lanka just today, something within us says, it shouldn't be this way. Something within us cries out and longs for things to be different. And here's why. Ecclesiastes 3 verse 11 says that God has set eternity in the human heart. And what this means for you and for me is that we long for something that this world in the present day can never satisfy. We have this awareness within us that we're made for something more, that it shouldn't be this way. This longing for a world where there's no pain, where there's no suffering, where there's no sickness. This longing for love and acceptance and belonging and purpose. And we search for it in this world. We try and find it. And we think if I could just have that relationship, or if I could just fix the issue that I've got in the relationship that I already have. Or if I could just have that that job. Or if I could just have enough money that I'd feel secure. Then, then maybe if I, if I got that promotion, I'd have a sense of purpose. 
And we, we look for all of these things and sometimes we get them and they're great and they're good. Sometimes we don't, but, but I don't know about you, but what I find is that, that in those times when I managed to grab hold of that longing that I thought would satisfy and would sort everything out, that actually all that really happens is that it just gives way to another longing. There's something else that I'm, isn't quite right. There's something else that I'm looking for. There's something else in the world that doesn't quite sit right in my heart. And here's the thing. You cannot throw wealth or sex or comfort or people and relationships into the place of eternity in your heart and expect it to fill that void because it's just too big. And sometimes we think, well, well, how can there be a God if there's so much suffering in the world when all of these bad things go on? When he's allowed this to happen in my life? And I love the way that, that C.S. Lewis wrestles with this. This is the author of the Chronicles of Narnia, and he wrestles with this, and he answers the question this way. He says this, If I find in myself desires which nothing in this world can satisfy... The only logical explanation is that I was made for another world. Try it and get hold of this. C.S. Lewis is saying, if I have this ache within me, this longing within me for something more, that it shouldn't be this way. If I look at the world and, I, and, I, and it's just everything in me goes, this is wrong. Why do I feel that? Where does that come from? Because if this is all there is, then it doesn't make any sense. If I have desires and longings and aches that it's impossible for this world to satisfy, then the only logical explanation is that I was made for another world, that God has set eternity in my heart. And this is really what Easter is all about. God knew our greatest need the longings that we have. And he knew that these were things that we could never fix on our own. That this world could never satisfy for us. And out of his love, he chose to do something about it. And to help us to to, to grasp something of this, I want us to look at a few verses that Paul, a follower of Jesus, writes to a church in Corinth. And he writes this nearly 2,000 years ago. But while so much has changed in that time, the human heart hasn't. And so it's just as relevant to us today. And Paul is talking about what's of first importance. What it is that we really need to get hold of. If there's one thing for us to hear, he says, this is what you've got to hear. If there's one thing for you to understand, this is what you've got to understand. And this is what he writes then in 1 Corinthians 15, verses 1 to 3 to start with. He says, now, brothers and sisters... I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and on which you have taken your stand. By this gospel, you are saved. If you hold firmly to the word I preached to you, otherwise you have believed in vain. But what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. Now we're going to pause there and we'll come to what he goes on to say in a moment. But let's just focus in on what Paul says here first. That Christ died for our sins. You know, in our culture, we don't really use that word sin very much, do we? Not outside of church anyway. So what does this really mean? 
What's it all about? Well, the word sin simply means to miss the mark. It's a word that archers used in medieval England when they were talking about having kind of aimed at the target and they let loose the arrow, but they miss the bullseye. They sinned. They missed the mark. And it can be easy to think, well, I'm a, I'm a good person and I try to treat people nicely and to be kind and to, to do the right thing. So, so what's the issue? But to say that someone has sinned does not mean that they've done horrendous, evil, horrific things. It simply means that that person has missed the mark. That even in trying to be a good person, even in aiming at that target to do the best that they possibly can, at different times they've missed that bullseye. There have been times when I know I've hurt people, even when I've been doing my best to be kind to them. And I've missed the mark. I've missed the mark of God's standards. And I think sin is probably at its most obvious when we think about how we can so often end up living our lives in some kind of selfish way, focused on ourselves. And to an extent, we all do this. You know, we, we, we live for what suits us. And it's not something that we're ever taught to do, is it? You know, my parents didn't set out to teach me how to be selfish. In fact, they taught me the opposite. They tried to teach me to share and to be kind to people and, and you know, to be a, a good person. But even though that's what they taught me, there was something in me that still wanted to hold on to things for myself. There was something in me that still wanted that biggest slice of cake when it got put out there for the family. There was something in me that still got into fights with my friends at school when they didn't want to do things my way. There is a selfishness in us all. There is something in each of us that pulls at us to aim away from the target. To aim away from the bullseye of living God's way. And that's what sin is. And we can learn to disguise it and to kind of dress ourselves up in nice clothes and put on a good show. We can learn to, to some extent, to control it and, and to try and, and kind of make ourselves kind of push it down so that it's, it's not there and to, to live in a different kind of way. But we can't ever fully deal with it and be free from it, can we? And it's there as we look at the, at the brokenness and the sinfulness of our world today. No, children are abused. Wives are beaten. People say hurtful words. They steal things. They put bombs in churches and kill innocent people. And all of this is a result of sinful people living in a sinful way. And it results in broken lives and broken emotions. Sin, our missing the mark becomes the greatest barrier that you and I have to knowing the deepest longings of our hearts satisfied. It is the greatest barrier that you and I have to being the people who we were made to be and experiencing peace and joy and hope and purpose that we long for. And what Paul says to us here is the most important thing for you to get hold of. 
is that Jesus Christ died for your sins. He died to deal with this issue of sin that we're talking about, to deal with the thing that that keeps breaking our relationships, the thing which keeps breaking us apart on the inside. Every single one of us in this room have got got very real, very often painful, emotional stories because in their sinfulness, other people have done things which have hurt us. And if we really want to be honest, we've also probably got those kind of stories because we're sinful people that have done things that have hurt others too. And so we experience a brokenness today because of sin. But not only that, because sin, the fact that Christ died for our sins is of first importance, because not only that, but sin condemns us to a life without Jesus. Not only now, but for all eternity. It stops us from ever being able to be fully satisfied. Because Jesus is the only one who can fill that void of eternity in our hearts. And Paul says, you've got to get this. This is so important. Jesus Christ died for your sins. Jesus came to pay the price to fix the problem and to settle the debt that you could never do on your own. He lived for 30 years and he modeled to us and he taught us what it looked like to live life with God as our Heavenly Father, to have a relationship with Him. And then he gave his life willingly. He went to the cross and laid down his life so that your and my sin could be paid for. So that you could have a fresh start. And so that every time that you've ever missed the mark can be wiped clean. And Jesus willingly gave his life for you because he loves you. He was willingly nailed to the cross and left to die. And it was God's love for you and his love for me that put him there. So that we could be set free and so that the control and the barrier of sin could be broken. Let's go back to what Paul is telling us is of first importance then. He says, goes on, and this is back in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul writes, For what I received I passed on to you as of first importance. First, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures. That he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, that is Peter, and then to the twelve. And so Paul is basically saying, The most important thing for you to get hold of is that Jesus died for your sins. That he was buried and that he was raised to new life on the third day. That's what we celebrate at Easter, isn't it? That's what today is is all about. Jesus' death cannot be separated from his resurrection. You can't talk about one without the other. And in between these two things, Paul says Jesus was buried. And why does he put this little bit in there? It seems to be a lot less important than the other two, doesn't it? I think really this is just Paul's way of saying, look, he really was dead. He was so dead that they buried him. This wasn't just an act. This wasn't just someone who was kind of declared dead on the hospital table, but someone had made a mistake. 
This is someone who had been beaten and whipped to within an inch of his life, who was then hung on a cross in for eight hours with his lungs filling up with blood, who then had a spear shoved underneath his ribs and up into his heart. And all of this was done by Roman soldiers who were professionals when it came to executing people. They knew how to recognize a dead body. Jesus was dead and buried. And for his disciples, for for those who followed him, it looked like their dream was over. It looked hopeless and it looked helpless. You know, so many questions must have been going through their heads on that day. As they tried to make sense of what's just happened. Of the fact that Jesus, the one that they had put all of their hope in, The one that they had given their lives to follow. The one who they'd seen raise people from the dead had now himself been defeated by death and was just a lifeless body wrapped in linen in a cold tomb. And sometimes, you know, I think in our own lives we can feel like that too. We can feel a sense of hopelessness and helplessness. We can wonder what's happened when we put so much hope in Jesus and all of this is going on. But you know, the the great hope that we have in Jesus is that even in those times where it seems hopeless and helpless, even in those times of, of life, He's still at work. Because even when things seemed at their most hopeless and helpless, even when everybody had written Jesus off, even his closest followers, the reality was that Jesus, in that moment, though nobody knew it, was still at work. He was still at work to make life and forgiveness and healing and hope available to everyone. And the moment when Jesus' followers realized that the cross wasn't a place of defeat, but a place of victory. The moment that they realized that, that Jesus was at work in the worst of times. And that it was through that that Jesus was going to fulfill all the things that he promised to them. That their hope was going to be made real. Was the moment when they met the risen Jesus. Was the moment when they saw that Jesus was alive. And this can be the part that people struggle with most. People can kind of get their heads around, well, Jesus was a a great teacher. Uh, Jesus may have sacrificed his life for people and died. Jesus may have died, but come on. This is a bit far-fetched now, isn't it? But you know, as much as this is the part that people struggle with, it is the part that is absolutely essential to the hope that we have in Jesus. Because without this, if Jesus just is still dead and buried... And we still face brokenness. We still face all of the pain and the barrier of sin. The cross may show us the price of sin. It may show us something of of Jesus' love. But it's the resurrection that shows us that that bill has been paid in full. 
And because this is the, the hardest part for people to get, and because it's the part that is so essential and without it everything else falls down, when people are, are kind of want to have a dig at Christianity and want to try and do something to pull it down and disprove it, they always tend to target the resurrection. They always tend to target the idea that Jesus could possibly rise from the dead. And so there was a man called Gilbert West in the 18th century. And he thought that Christianity was a fraud. And so he decided that he was going to write a book to disprove the resurrection. Because if you disprove the resurrection, then the rest of Christianity would fall down. And halfway through the book, he met Jesus. And he ended up writing his book the other way around. And showing why we can have such confidence in the resurrection. In the 19th century, there was a famous writer called Lou Wallace, who was also a, a general in the army. And a friend of his who was an atheist, he didn't like Christianity much. And so he came to Lou Wallace and he, and he said to him, look, will you write a book to disprove the resurrection? And Lou Wallace agreed and he got to the fourth chapter and then he met Jesus. And he wrote his book the other way around. In the 20th century, there was a a lawyer and a journalist called Frank Morrison. He decided that he would disprove the resurrection, and so therefore he would discredit Christianity. And he was a journalist, so he knew and was experienced in how to investigate and get all of the facts. And he was a lawyer, which meant that he was experienced in how to twist those facts and that information in order to prove his point. And he got halfway through his book, and he met Jesus. And he wrote his book the other way around. And his book is called Who Moved the Stone? If you really want to, you can go and buy it off of Amazon and read it for yourself. You know, if you're in a hurry to become a Christian, just try and disprove the resurrection. You know, I've heard it said that there is more historical evidence for the resurrection than for any other fact in Roman times. Isn't that amazing? And this is good news for us. Because the fact that Jesus is alive today, the fact that he rose from the dead, the fact that the grave could not hold him is the very reason that we have hope. Is the very reason that we have something to celebrate. It's the very reason that today, whatever it is that we're facing, we can face it with confidence. Because the resurrection changes everything. Romans 4 verse 25 says this. It says, Jesus was delivered over to death for our sins. We've talked about that. And then it says he was raised to life for our justification. Now, that's another word that we don't use much these days and that no one really knows what it means maybe outside of church circles. And so it can be hard to understand. But what it really means is that not only did Jesus pay the price for our sins, not only did he pay the price for every time we missed the mark, not only did he wipe away all of those mistakes, not only did he deal with every time that we tried to be good people. But we just somehow were a little bit off kilter. But he was raised to life for our justification. And that means he was raised to life 
that we might have right standing before God. That means that Jesus doesn't just wash away every time we missed the mark, but he credits us with the perfect life that he lived. This means he doesn't just take away the arrows that are around the target where you missed, but he gives you all of his arrows that hit the bullseye. And says you hit the mark. You did it. You're right. You're good. You're perfect. You're pure. You're blameless. So that we're able to have right relationship with God. And what does that really mean for you and for me? Well, later in Romans 8, Paul writes this. He says, it is God who justifies. So God who enables us to have every arrow hit the bullseye. So who then is the one who condemns? No one. Christ Jesus who died, more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? No. In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Because Jesus is alive today, we are accepted and we are loved and nothing can take that away from us. Because Jesus is alive, we are free from guilt and no one can condemn us or bring a charge against us. You know, when we struggle, when we miss the mark, when we make mistakes and people come along and judge us, when we have that voice inside of us that beats us up and tells us, how could you do that? That pulls us down. We can look to Jesus And because he is alive, we can say, who are you to condemn? Who are you to bring charges against me? Because God says, I'm perfect. I hit the bullseye. I've made it. I'm right with him. And it doesn't require us to never make mistakes again. It's the free gift of God that we are credited with the perfect life that Jesus lived. When you put your trust in Jesus, not only are you forgiven, but you are set free from guilt. From every shameful thing. And no one is able to bring a charge against you. You are accepted and you are loved. And you are seen by God as blameless. And it doesn't seem right sometimes, does it? We say, well, that's not me. That's not who I am. And it's not. But it is who Jesus is. And when God looks at you, if you put your trust in Jesus, that's who he sees. He sees every perfect act of Jesus. And he is well pleased with you. And it doesn't mean that God's content to see us stuck in our struggles where we can say, well, that's not me. Now elsewhere, Paul writes that the same power that raised Jesus from the dead is when we put our trust in Jesus comes to live in us. The same power, the Holy Spirit who who healed the wounds of Jesus, who raised him from the dead, is now at work in our lives. And in the work of the lives of every person who believes in him. 
This means that every single one of us can have hope because it means that there is no cycle of behavior, no habit, no situation that you feel stuck in that is hopeless or helpless anymore. Because Jesus is in the business of replacing broken hearts, of putting together fractured bodies, of healing emotions, of strengthening and enabling us and setting us free. Because the same power that raised Jesus from the dead is at work in us. Is it at work in all of us? No. It's a work in all who what? All who believe. And that's really the key question for each of us today, isn't it? Are we counted amongst those who believe? Where do we look and where do we run? Where do we put our hope? Because... We follow the ways of this world, then most people, when they're struggling, they don't run to Jesus. They run to self-help books, or they run to friends, or they run to drink to try and numb and hide things. You know, in one way or another, they essentially try to fix themselves. That's the way that we're wired on our own. To satisfy this deep longing and ache within us with something in this world. And it simply doesn't work. You can't fix it on your own. Whether it's your lust or your bitterness or your selfishness. Whether it's a cycle of behavior that you you want to change. You can't fix it on your own. Because you don't have power over life and death. You can't. But the good news of Jesus is that Jesus can. And that's why we celebrate today. That's the hope that is on offer today. That's what Paul tells us is of the first importance today. It's what Jesus invites us to today. That we might stop trying to fill the void of eternity in our hearts with the things of this world. And instead look to Jesus as the only one who can satisfy as the one who promises to satisfy every ache and longing of our hearts, if not in this life, then in the one to come. And to know the assurance of that hope that we're not made for this world. We're made for eternity. There's a reason why we look around and say it doesn't, shouldn't be this way. And it might be that while we are in this world, we will still have times where we look around and we'll still have times when we go through things in our own life and we can't make sense of it and we say it shouldn't be this way. That doesn't... That can be the case for us whether you count yourself as a Christian or not. I'm not saying that following Jesus is going to be this quick fix and you'll never have to ask that question again. But when we accept Jesus as the one who died for our sins, who was buried and was raised again on the third day, we can have a hope that is sure and certain that we are forgiven. 
that we are washed clean, that we are made right before God, that God looks at us and sees us as blameless, and that we have an eternity to look forward to when we're no longer in this world. An eternity to look forward to when he will satisfy every longing and every ache and every desire of our hearts. And so I want to invite you to respond to Jesus today. To make that choice to look to him as your hope. I don't know all the different situations that you're going through, but what I do know is that in every single one of them, Jesus is the only one who can satisfy And for some of you, that may be about bringing specific areas of your life, specific things that are going on, specific longings that you have to Jesus. Maybe you've been trying to fill it with relationships or career or to to find purpose in other things or to numb it with, with drink or sex or drugs. Or you've simply been bitter and angry about it with God. about the fact that the world is so broken and the fact that he's allowed these things to go on in your life. That things haven't worked out the way that you hoped they would. And today Jesus is inviting you to look to him as your hope. Because he is alive. Because he is the one who can satisfy and fill that eternity in your heart. Or it may be that today you respond to Jesus and as you do that, you are making that decision for the first time to give your life to Jesus. And if that's you or if you're not quite feeling ready to do that but you're kind of wanting to find out more, then I'd love to give you a little book called Why Jesus Before You Go and I'd love you to come along to Alpha and to join us there to explore this more. It's a fantastic place to learn and to grow and to ask questions. To be honest. Well, why I'm making some great friends along the way. And to help us to respond, we're going to come to a time of communion. Because communion is not only a time when we remember. When we remember what Jesus has done. How he gave his life and he died for our sins. How he was buried and he was raised again on the third day. But it's also a time when we proclaim. When we declare who Jesus is. That we have put our hope in him. That we are looking forward to that day when he returns because we know he is alive. That we have hope in him. And if as you respond you're wanting to make that decision to to put your trust in Jesus for the first time, then I'd love you and I'd encourage you to share that with someone who you came with. Or come and share it with me or we'll have some guys here at the front at the end who would love to to talk with you and to pray with you about that and to be able to celebrate with you that that's a decision you've been able to make today. But for every one of us, I want to encourage you to use this as a time both to thank Jesus, to celebrate him, to remember him, but also as a time when you make that decision to put your hope in him again. In those specific areas of your life, or maybe just in in general, or maybe for the first time, to put your hope in him as the only one who can satisfy. So if the band could come up and the guys who are going to help me serve...